Romans chapter 3. And uh, we're going to start reading in uh, verse 21. We're going to be down in verse 24 and 25 here um, as we uh, begin to look at uh, some of the most important information there is uh, here pertaining really to our justification, but then also to pertaining to that wonderful issue. Uh, there's a word in verse 25, propitiation. And uh, outside of the word grace, the term grace, propitiation is probably the next most important word in Paul's epistles um, because of uh, what, it, what the doctrine is and everything. So we're going to spend this week, next week, uh, looking at it, uh, hopefully we'll get into it this morning a little bit, uh, but we gotta clean, we got to do verse 24 first. Uh, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And up to that point we've seen the courtroom, we've seen man be charged, Man, uh, man be allowed to give his defense, then God executes the judgment of guilty, verse 19. Now in verse 21, but now, and again in verse 19, now we know there's some dispensational terminology that's being used here to uh, introduce and to change the, and to bring into or to make known, <laughs> we now know, but now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. So now we're, we're beginning to see the same righteousness of God that condemned man, that said man is guilty, man's a sinner, is now going to turn and begin to work for man and to begin to work on man's behalf. And that's where we're at here. Verse 24 uh, or verse 23 we saw last time about the faith of Jesus Christ. And the fact is, is that God, the Father, in verse 25, is going to place his faith in the faithfulness of his Son uh, in that issue of the propitiation. And so we talked about the issue of the faith of Christ. And, and again, Christ, he, he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He did some things in response to the word and the will of the Father. And he went to Calvary. Uh, he went to Calvary because of you and I. But because he went, he, he, see, God's righteousness doesn't turn an, a blind eye to the issue of sin and, and, and the transgression. But God can't just justify anyone. His justification, his, the, the, the mechanism, I should say, sits in the issue of his, his justice and his right, and I'm going to say this wrong and I'll get yelled at, but so just give me a minute as I stumble over my eye teeth, okay? See what I'm saying here. God's righteousness demands, and his justice demands perfect righteousness. We don't have it, okay? But his son did have it. Perfection. So that's why he was made to be sin. I, I told you last week we were talking about that word made. He took, a, he took a natural situation and made it into a really an unnatural thing for Christ, Philippians 2. He was made. 
He took upon himself. He did some things. He, he adjusted some. He never quit being deity, but he became humanity 100%. So that then through his activity, God can do what? Justify mankind. Okay? Now in verse 23 or 22, it's unto all. The provision is made available to everyone. But it is not imputed. That's one of those words, imputation, uh, upon all them that believe. That upon all, that's the issue of imputation. I'm going to place it upon you. I'm going to put it to your account. Now verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When he says at the end of verse 22, for there is no difference, for all have sinned, 22 and 23 go together, okay? The reason he says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God is that's our condition. That's who we are. Then he says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a to be, 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 to be a that's a new new language there, okay? So to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past to the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. So as we come into verse 24, Every word is critical in this verse, and understanding what each word means begins to bring some stability into our thinking and and what they meant, being, justified, being, that state of be, this is who you are. If you look over at chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, therefore, being justified by faith, that issue of being, you be something. You're either, you either be in Adam or you be in Christ. That's the two categories of mankind. So the issue here is in being, that, that who you are, that state of, of who you are, being justified. Now, when you talk about justified, uh, it simply means God can and will declare you righteousness, being justified, to declare someone righteous. And, and it's not justified, never sinned. <laughs> used to hear that one. No, you, you sinned, okay? That's who you are. But being justified, it, it's something very special going on here. And, and again, it's part of that revelation given to Paul that now the righteousness of God is providing for, it's taking care of the justice of God that was contrary to us. When he came in and he says, hey, Here we go, we got some things that are against you. You're a sinner, you're guilty. The righteousness of God pronounced that. But now the righteousness of God says, I'm taking care of it as well. Okay? So we possess, being justified, his righteousness. Uh, Come over to Romans chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse number 5. You see, when we talk about being justified and our justification... God can and will declare you to be righteous, but he's doing it in his own righteous. He doesn't say you and, of your, you and your nature is righteous because your nature isn't. Now, he's going to give you a new nature, and he's going to give you a new man. But he, again, that faith of Christ, he's the activity, he's the source. Chapter 4, verse 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justified the ungodly... His faith is counted for righteousness. Who are you? Ungodly. 
But what did he do? He, he justified. You see, God can't justify an ungodly person. I'm sorry, a godly person. Okay? Say, say it again. God can't justify a godly person. He only can justify what in that verse? Ungodly. See? He does it based on the faith of his son. By the way, you'll notice that we're justified, uh, uh, but him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That issue of faith. See, justification is to be made righteous. Come over to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. So when we begin to talk about these terms, there's a great book back there somewhere on the bookcase, uh, the Dictionary of the Gospel. Tom Bruchet wrote that years ago. Actually, the first time he taught that, I was in his teenage class uh, at uh, Cedar Lake, Indiana, at one of the Briam Bible Fellowship meetings back in the 80s. Uh, I, have, I can remember him teaching that. I was the hellion in the class that kept everybody else up, you know, all going, but uh, he, he did teach that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. In that book, by the way, he goes through these definitions really well. For he hath made him, so God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? He didn't know sin. He was made to be. See that issue of being made? Made him to be? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He had no sin. We are sinners. And what did the Father do? Well, he provided an answer for our problem, didn't he? In his Son. In the faithfulness of his Son. He took the natural thing, the natural condition, and he turned it up. He made it unnatural, if you will. He turned it upside down. And he fixed it. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, we're made his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1. It, it, we weren't righteous, folks. Don't let religion or any of that other nonsense out there ever think that you can be in your own self. He gives us, 1 Corinthians 1, his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, Wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And there's that redemption word. The personal, the present status of who we are in Christ is in that verse. What did he make? He made unto us. He took Jesus Christ and in him he's going to do some things for us. You know, you can say that you're righteous because you're aware in Christ, see. You can't say I'm righteous in your own self. You have to say you're righteous where? In Christ. Come over back to Romans 8, on your way back to Romans 3. Romans 8. I, I told we, I, we'd slow down in some of this, because as we look at this, it's, these are critical things to get square in your mind. Romans 8, verse 33. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So who justifieth? God does. Legally, no one can make a legitimate claim or charge against you for eternity. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? No one. Why? Because God is the one doing the justifying. Not my activity, not anything that has to do with, with anything else. It's him. Come back to Romans. Uh, well, you're in Romans, duh. All right? <laughs> Come back to 5, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified. by Over and over through Romans, he's going to talk about this issue of justification. Even as we advance into other areas, that issue of justification lays right there with us. Even in Ephesians 2, he talks about, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves as a gift to God, not of works as any man should boast. He talks about, but the, but the mercy of, but God was rich in mercy and that he saved us. By grace. He talks about our issue of justification right there. Now, Ephesians doesn't go into great detail about it because you have the book of Romans to do that for you. So if you built in this foundation of Romans, then when you get over to Ephesians 2 in your edification process, you're not going, what's he talking about? It's already there. Chapter 5, verse 1, being therefore, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Much more than being now justified by his blood. Isn't that interesting, the issue of justification? But more than that is the issue of being saved from the wrath to come. Look over at verse 16. 5.16, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 18, therefore as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to con condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So now we have this issue of a free gift being associated with the justification. God made you, he justified you, okay? He can't find fault with anyone who is in his son. And it's all based upon the free gift principle. So when you come back to chapter 3, verse 24, what's the next word? Being justified, what's the next word? Freely. Isn't that interesting? Based of, our justification is based upon the issue of the free gift principle. Romans 3, verse 24 now. And I'll be honest with you, that's a great confidence. <laughs> that's a great, it's like, wow, cool. Because if I tried to do it, after this past week, it would have been shot. I'd have been in hell with the door slammed behind me, double locked, you know. The gates would have been tripled. <laughs> Why? Because you have bad weeks, don't you? Or you have bad days. And this, but he never does. And we're found where? In him. We're made in him. Freely. That's a wonderful word. That's the word that Eve left out of the conversation with Lucifer in Genesis 3. 
He said, you can freely eat of all the trees of the garden but one. And Eve left freely out and add touch it in. So she took out grace and added the law. See? Freely. No. That word freely, the idea, no condition. Come over to Luke 7. No conditions required. Unconditional. Unrestricted. Nothing required or expected in return. Uh, you know, I think about the, a gift. You know, you give gifts to people, birthdays, Christmas, whatever, or just for the heck of it, okay? You know, you give. And, and what are you, when you do that, are you looking for something in return? More than likely, no. Sometimes you are. depends on what you're, you know, the doing. But 99% of the time, you're not looking but for a what? A thank you. That's all you're looking for. That's what Christ, he says there in Romans 1, mark of the heathen is that they were unthankful. I did all this for you, and yet you're still unthankful. That's why we should be very thankful. That's why giving thanksgiving, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, being thankful. Luke 7, that issue of freely. There's nothing on the part of the guilty that the judge wants. He just gives it to them freely. The judge in that courtroom, man's come, he's guilty. The Lord Jesus Christ walks in, the judge is going to pronounce a sentence, and he pronounces the sentence as he's looking at the Savior, and he says, their sentence is guilty, and a second death, and the lake of fire, and the wrath without indignation, but you're going to serve it. And he goes, I'm going to make that available free to these guys. All they have to do is trust you that you're going to go do it. That you did it. Let's talk past tense because it's done. Okay. Luke 7, 42. The idea here about freely. And when they had, here it is, nothing to pay he frankly forgave them both tell tell me therefore which of them will love him most when they had what nothing to pay that's that idea of freely nothing to pay i don't have to pay i mean i know you look at it and he's got the debtors and the, but that issue of nothing to pay come back to romans 3 no condition free gift Free to go, good to go. Being justified freely by his, next word, grace, that big word. Everybody likes that word. God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, more going on than just that here. His grace, that free to, all the conditions, all the condemnation, all of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us has been personally met by God himself on our behalf. That issue of grace. Uh, come over to chapter 11 in Romans. Romans 11. It's a wonderful verse back here that you have to keep in your mind when you talk about grace and that free gift condition and the issue in relationship to our justification and the relationship to the propitiation Look, look at uh, 11.6 of Romans. 
And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But, it be, but if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Notice how grace is defined for you in that, in that verse. Grace, by definition, demands the absence of what? Work. There's nothing we can do. Just as darkness demands the, requires the absence of light, cold requires the absence of heat, grace says, go back to Romans 3. If I say Matthew 3, I mean Romans 3, okay? Because <laughs> we're studying Matthew on Wednesday night. Grace says what? No works. It's a gift. It's a free gift. All that's required him, to him that worketh not but believes. 4 5. What's required? Faith. Faith in who? Faith in the, faith, in the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you, uh, I'm sorry, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. The freedom of a captive by the payment of a ransom. That word redemption, uh, being made free by a payment of a ransom. You and I, we, in, our, in our natural state, in our old man, we belong to the slave market of sin. But what's happened is, is what did he do? He went and paid the ransom price to get you out of that market. Notice our redemption is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the sinner is declared righteous, justified. That is, he is the sinner is declared righteous for free on the basis of the shed blood of the cross work of Jesus Christ. And that's the very means by which God can now move into verse 25 and begin to talk about the issue of whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Because what God does and in, in the means by which God's grace can make it all possible is that the Father took His faith and placed it in the faithfulness of His Son. Before the foundation of the world, they have their conference. They get their plan together. They get all that going. And, he, and the Father lays out the plan. Proverbs, you see, wisdom was there. And they get the blueprint and they get it all laid out. And the father says, okay, here's the plan, guys. And the son says, okay, I'm in. The Holy Spirit says, yep, I'm in too. That's a good plan. Let's execute it. And he says, okay. So they began to execute the plan. And the son was faithful all the way through to that plan. So then when you come into verse 25 now, in this mechanics of justification, that's what we're looking at, verse 24, 25, 26, you begin to see this critical issue 
of propitiation pop up. And when you see this issue here in the issue of propitiation, the first thing you got to remember or think about is that Jesus Christ does not propitiate us. He's propitiating. We're the sinners. We have no standing in this activity. We are not in the equation at all. Notice that equation in verse 25. It's God the Father and who? And the Son. We're not in it. We don't show up in, in, in actually in this until we get down into verse 27 and 28. In the, so Jesus Christ, this is, a, this, is a, this is Him working on our behalf. This is God the Father taking the initiative and doing something on our behalf to deal with the sin problem that's in humanity. There's a gap between us and God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So when Jesus Christ goes in, and again, that word propitiation, fully satisfying payment. Well, whose payment was on the books to be required? God's justice says... Perfect righteousness is the standard. Humanity doesn't have it. Jesus Christ says, I'll do for them what they can't never do for themselves. And I'll stand in the gap. So I, I try to think about how to illustrate this. If this is God the Father, and here we are, what's standing in between? What's on the front of this pulpit? The cross. It bridged the gap, didn't it? But the cross was looking to who? To the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He says. He doesn't say, how you doing, man? Come on up here, help me out. He turned to his Father and says, I am, you, you've forsaken me. And that Psalms, he goes on and says, I am not a man, I'm a worm. Ooh. Then you run that worm out and you find out that Isaiah 66 and Mark 9 where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What was, when he says, I'm a worm, you know where he's at? He's in the grips of the second death. He's in the middle of that cup of indignation. And he faithfully went and did it for, on our behalf, but he did it to please who? His father. See that? So when we talk about propitiation here, it has, it has nothing with God turning a blind eye to our sin. However, it, how, it has everything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ taking, standing in the gap, if you will, between the two parties. And I hope as we go down through this, you begin to see the, take this personally. Because he did this for you, personally. He did it for all of man. It's unto all, but it's upon them that all that believe. You believe he did it for you and I. When you talk about propitiation in religion, in the pagan side of the equation, their idea of propitiation is if I bring enough offerings or gifts or activity or behavior or or work, or attitude, if I can do something, then I can appease God and make Him happy with me. And that God can be the God of their own making. 
Okay? But when you come into Scripture, that has nothing to do with any of it at all. Because what have we just learned in verse 24? It's freely by his great, that free gift principle. It had nothing to do with your activity. So look at verse 25. Whom God. Now, again, that's the same God that judged man in, chapter, in verse 19. It's the same God who is now going to tell you and I about what he's done to fix and to help man, to solve man's problem. It's amazing to me. He, he says, here's man's problem, and now here's how to fix it. <laughs> and then he says, okay, by the way, you can't fix it. I fixed it for you. Just trust me. Trust what I did. Okay? You guys with me? You okay? Just Sunday morning. All right? Okay. In whom God. Notice the next two words. Set forth to be. Set forth. I, I, when you set forth something, I'm going to show you. I'm going to put it out here for you to see. I'm not hiding it. It's not over here that if you say enough of abadabacadabras, you got it. It's not a trick. It's not a secret. It's, it's right there for you. I set it in front of you. I put it on display. Come over to Galatians 3. Here's the idea behind set forth. Galatians 3, verse 1. That issue of set forth. I tell you, every word is critical in this stuff. And our understanding. Because when we look at it personally and we take this personally, then I believe it becomes, a lot, it becomes more real for you. Galatians 3, look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Evidently, evidence, set forth. When, when Paul went into Galatia and gave them the gospel, his gospel, it was just as if in their presence the Lord Jesus Christ in Calvary was right there. It was manifested in them. It was set right in front of them. Now, the folks at Galatia, more than likely, none of them were in Jerusalem when the Lord died. Some of them might have been, you don't know. But Paul says this stuff was so real to you guys down there. It was just like he was, it, the activity, the cross hung right in front of you. Come back to 2 Corinthians 2. Our focus, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, my bad. First mistake this morning. <laughs> Not really, but if you believe that, I got a bridge to sell you in and, and, uh, southeast uh, Arizona. <laughs> okay. Our focus, our center of attention, the focus of not only us, but of all of the universe is the cross of Christ, including Satan's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the
the Lord of glory. Look what was, Satan looks back and says, man, if we'd have known this, we would have never done that tree thing over there. We'd have never let that happen. So the cross is the center. Back to verse 20, chapter 3, verse 25. Who did he set forth? In whom God set forth? Who's the whom? Well, Christ Jesus is. God took his son, set his son on open display. He held up his son, and by placing his faith in the faithful activity of his son, the faithfulness of his son, he said, there he was. There's the answer. There's the propitiation. There's what stands in the gap between me and man. There he is. You think about, come over to chapter 8. When he says that, in whom God set forth to be, our propitiation, when he said, I set him forth. Look at eight, chapter 8 of Romans and look at verse 32. Look at what he did when he set him forth. He that spared God, uh, verse 31, what, uh, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He, God, that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, hey, there's that word again, give us all things. Notice the first part of that verse. Spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Spared not. God held his son personally accountable for your sin. Jesus Christ was personally responsible for all of mankind's sin. Spared him not. Didn't say you're going to die for this group of people and no one else. Now, what is when Matthew 1, when the Lord comes, he came to save who? His people from their sins, right? Well, wait a minute. What about everybody else? Ah, but there was a redemptive program for everybody else in Israel's program. Gentile salvation is one of the key marks of the whole of the Old Testament. But it's going to go through his, who? Israel. Now we know. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. Now what are we doing? Now it's not through Israel. Now it goes directly to everybody. But why? Because God delivered up his own son. God held his son accountable. Spared not. He didn't. He didn't, he didn't hold back. He just laid it on him. You think about, again, that issue of propitiation. It's not a nice story. Because God spared not his own. He didn't hold it back. When, when the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane looks down in that cup, and he says, man, Father, if there's a way, please, but not my will, but thy will be done. Why? Because Jesus Christ knew that God could not justify 
the ungodly without an innocent dying for them. He knew that. Delivered him up. God viewed his son as guilty. But wait a minute. Man was the guilty one. Man is the one who is the sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ walks into that courtroom. Come back to Roman, to chapter 3. When the Lord, when the, when Paul stands and gives the, the prosecution and man stands and gives the defense, standing in the wings is the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father sits there and he says, hang on a second here, guys. And in comes the Lord and he stands right over there and he says, you guys are guilty, but he's the one that's going to pay for it. He's the one that's going to have the sentence. He's the one that's going to serve the sentence. And that's that issue of the propitiation. And this, again, is where the faith of Christ is so critical. That's why Philippians 2 is so important. That's why we looked at it last week. Why? Because he became what? Obedient to death. Even the death of the cross. He took your curse. That's why in Hebrews 2, Hebrews back there, he learned obedience in connection with what remember death come back with me to isaiah 53 you see folks jesus christ personally experienced your second death are you guys warm no all right you and i we're gonna mess with it now are you guys okay out there i'm i got like four shirts on so Take it off. Don't do that. All right, we just run it down a degree. It just got, I was, it got stuffy. I know you guys are cold. It's getting humid out. Is that what it is? All right. I had to give you time to find Isaiah 53. I just ran it down one degree, so just to maybe move the air. Oh, hush back there. You wimp. Isaiah 53, man, can't, can't please, yeah. All right, Isaiah 53, look at verse number 10. Again, just thinking about this issue of propitiation, thinking about Jesus Christ, thinking about God, the Father, holding his son accountable. 53.10, Isaiah Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What? It pleased the Lord. Jehovah, Father, Jehovah God, to do what? To bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Isn't that interesting? He had a, the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians Two, he's the Godhead, how? Bodily. And we looked there about his, the issue of his bodily. He's, he says in Hebrews, quoting Psalms, a body thou hast made of me. But what does that verse also say he had? He had a soul. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because he took on human humanity, didn't he? All three forms. 
All three compartments. Notice he, his soul, the invisible part of him there, if you will. When the, when the Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, and he's praying, do you remember what he, he had drops of what, sweat of what, blood coming out of him? The grief, he grieved, he hath put me to grief, he bruised me. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ had emotion and emotions. When Lazarus dies, Lord goes, it pained the Lord. It, it, he cried, the verses talk about. The, your soul, the real you, who you are, who you and I are. You see, he, he, he had a will. He had a desire. He had his own thing going on. But what was the conclusion in the garden? Not my will, but... Thy will be done. And what you do is you begin to see his faithfulness in action. Notice the rest of verse 10 there. He shall see his seed, for he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And, verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul. Isn't that just fascinating to me? Jesus Christ went to the cross because of you. So the cross is for who? You. It's the answer to sin. And it becomes the answer for sin on a daily basis. Because what did he do? <laughs> he dealt with it. He paid for all of it. And when sin props up, you know what you do? You say, you know what? That's what he died for. Let's go put it right over there on the cross. That's what Titus 2 is talking about. Denying that we should deny ungodliness. Hey, look, you know, the, one, the answer to sin on a daily basis is resting in who and what his faith did for us. That takes care of all that. You know, and, and I'm not talking about the activity sins. Let's talk about the internal pride and anger and wrath and malice. Ephesians 4 says all that should be put away from you. So when anger wells up, and, or the big bad one is pride, when that one wells up, he died for that. You put it away. Verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be, look at that, satisfied, propitiated. God the Father looks at the Son. He goes to Calvary. That's what we're talking about, the context of 53, Isaiah 53. And you know what he says? He goes, I see what my Son went through and what he accomplished and his faithfulness to do that. And you know what it did? Satisfied me satisfied the requirements of my justice and of my holiness and my righteousness and my integrity he stood in the gap but now watch the next how did how was he satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities 
By his what? His knowledge. There's the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he does it in his knowledge. He understands that he was the only eternal answer for your urgent need. He knew that. But in his knowledge, what else did he know was going to happen? Up from the grave he arose. He knew that his father said on the third day, there'll be a little resurrection life for you. And grave won't hold you. That last enemy, death, won't hold you. I will not allow that to happen. And you know what the son said? I'm holding you to it. <laughs> and off he went. Pleasure, the end of verse 10 there, the pleasure of the Lord. You see, folks, the Lord had a clear understanding and did what he did because he participated in the legal activity and the legal work for you. And God's righteousness, his justice, his integrity, his holiness was satisfied. And this is really what propitiation is built upon, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is now satisfied. How? By his knowledge. By the son's knowledge to go and to do and to say, it is finished and the work is done. So when you come back to Romans 3, as we begin to talk about this word propitiation, the pleasure of of the Lord. The pleasure wasn't in watching his son die. When the Lord cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? Don't you know the father hated to hear that? Don't you know the father wanted to reach down and rescue his son? Any father would. Any father would step in, the, in front of that bullet. But yet, what did he do? But rather, he watched him deliberately, willingly, with determination, go and obey the word and the will of the father. And you know what he did? He did it with delight. Come over to Hebrews 12. He did it because he had knowledge. He had learned. He had, he, he had grown up and he, he had matured. And, and again, that's why we looked at all those verses last week about what the Lord says. These are not my words. They're the Father's words. These are not my activities. They're his activities. You want to know the Father. You want to see the Father. You see me. And when you see me, you see the Father. And all of that. He, his knowledge and all that. Look at Hebrews 12. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Look, look at it. For the joy that was set. Do you think he looked over there and said, man, when the Romans start beating on me, that's going to be a great day. Woohoo! You think when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, sweating drops of blood, that he's sitting there going, man, this is a fan. No, what did he say? Father, if there's a way for this cup to, not my will, but your will be done. He, he's looking for an out. He, I showed you that verse in Matthew. I could, my father could call 12 legions, the legions here of angels and deliver me. But the next verse says, who would fulfill the scriptures? There's nobody out there who can do this. Only I can do it. His soul, the travail of his soul. Psalms 22, he describes going down into the miry depths of what death is. You heard me say the one time about when somebody goes to hell, it's just like that eternally falling. They can never get over the falling feeling. Why? That comes out of Psalms 22, and it goes down in that mire, and the mire's got him, and he can't get out of it. And yet, what does the father do? Reaches out. Rescues him. Resurrection. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And boy, how, how could he endure? How can you and I endure? We got a little what? We got a little knowledge, don't we? Romans 8.18 I just think about this, the suffering, Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. How about thinking about suffering that way? That's how Christ was thinking. The joy, what was, what was the joy? I, I, I think about, he, what was the joy? Dying or resurrection life? Hello? Resurrection. Was it going through the turmoil of dying, the cross work, or was it going to be resurrected and into glory? It's the glory, baby. And what do we have? We have that mind of Christ, don't we? We can look at the sufferings and know what? 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, 18. We, don't, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't look at the temporal. We look at the, 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 extern, the, the external, the eternal. Why? Because we know that the, the tribulation and the trouble, the suffering is up for a moment, and it's going to work for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. We, we have a mindset to adjust to because of who we are in Him. Why? Because... What does Paul pray? What does the Holy Spirit pray for you and I to have? Wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. He says, man, you got that, then guess what you can do? You can look at the present distress. Think about the cross. Was that a little distressful? I think a little bit. And yet, what did he do? For the joy that was set before him endured. And he did it for you. He did it for all of humanity. But for you. So when we talk about propitiation, he fully, he stood in the gap. There's a gap between God and man. And the Lord says, I'll take their, what does is, what is your justice say? Dump it on me. And man's sitting there going, thank you? <laughs> or no thank you, actually. 
Now, the, there's an issue in the propitiation. I'm going to introduce it to you here. Come back there to Hebrews 9, and then we'll pick up on this next time a little bit. That issue of the word propitiation. <clears throat> and then in Hebrews 9 and verse number 5. Hebrews 9, verse 5. Hebrews 9, 5. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. He's talking here about the, the, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 5 he talks about the cherubims of glory shadowing. You see that mercy seat? That were the, the mercy seat and propitiation are the same Greek words here. Okay? However, mercy seat and propitiation are different. Okay? You know how you know? They're spelled different. <laughs> but they're different. But they work together. Propitiation is the focus on the person. Who is the propitiation in Romans 3.25? In whom God set forth his, who? Christ, his son. The mercy seat focuses in on the place. Where was the mercy seat at? In the Holy of Holies, in the temple, visited what? Once a year by the priest, high priest, right? Verse 6. So the person and the place get merged at the mercy seat. That's the very place that the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, is placed. Again, God cannot be, he cannot be legally merciful to just anyone outside of the basis of the innocent one standing in the place of the guilty. So God just can't say, I'm going to be, I know he says I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful to, but where is he merciful to people? In who? In Christ. So the ultimate mercy seat is Calvary. That's the place and the person where the sacrifice is taken care of. You follow that? Okay. Now, Hebrews 9, look down at verse 11. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about propitiation, and then they'll go, mercy seat. And Romans 8 is not talking about the mercy seat. Romans 8 is talking about the person. The place, you remember in Acts 2, the day, of, the day of Pentecost has fully come. The fulfillment of Pentecost, just as the fulfillment of Passover was the cross, the fulfillment of Pentecost was right there. Okay? The mercy seat, Calvary, is that picture of the mercy seat that's pictured in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. So when Christ dies and he ascends into heaven, tells the ladies, I haven't been to my father yet, i got to go do my finish up, what he literally does is goes into the throne room and crawls up on the mercy seat as the shed blood in the third heaven. Because there's the true, remember the true tabernacle, the true temple sits? He literally goes up there and crawls, 
crawls up on between the cherubs and says, the sacrifice has been paid. Did you follow that? Think that through, okay? Now look at verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So where is that at? That's in, that's in the third heaven. He just went up there, crawled up on there as the sacrifice. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What did he do? He dies, he ascends up to the Father, he goes into the holy of holies in the third heaven, in the true, and what does he do? Gets up on the mercy seat, says, I am it. And you know what the Father says? Yes, well done, my son. Now go back. <laughs> we got more to do. Okay? You see, see how that works? But look at the goats and the calves. And we're going to look back in Leviticus 16. We'll do it next time because we're, we're almost out of time this morning. The, the bullock. There, there were some animals that were used in sacrifice. The bullock, the calf here. They would go in. The high, they would slit the throat, catch the blood. The high priest would go in. And that was for cleansing of himself. He'd do himself. Then you had goats. You have two goats, he goats. The first goat, you went in, he cut him, slit his throat, took the blood, went into the Holy of Holies and put it on the mercy seat, and that was the life of the innocent for the guilty. Then you had a second goat. He's usually called the old goat. You know, that old goat comes from is this stuff. But then the priest would go over and would put some blood on the old goat. He's called the scapegoat. And let him go. Put him out in the wilderness. And that was the sins never again to be remembered. And off he goes. That's what's happening here. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean and sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's the, you know what? Christ offered himself. He's the propitiation. He's the one that will only satisfy the requirements of that mercy seat. The, bull, the blood of bulls and goats didn't get it done. They did that every year. Every year they had to go back and do it again. And he died once for all. So the mercy seat for us, if you will, is Calvary. And really, the mercy seat for everyone in fulfillment is Calvary, where Jesus Christ is the personal and perfect offering that's given to the Father on our behalf. That's, that word propitiation is fantastic. We're out of the equation. We got a gap between us. And again, I, what stands in there? The cross does. That just happened to work that way, by the way. Okay? Because I was struggling this morning. How, how do I illustrate that? That's what he did. Okay? We're going to go back and look in the Old Testament a little bit next week at, at the propitiation back there. But, man, this stuff in 25, in chapter 325, it's critical. It's key. Good to go slow. Okay?
All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the propitiation. We thank you for the doctrine of it. We thank you for being able to understand it and to rejoice in it and to live our lives in that knowledge and understanding. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.